0: GREAT PATIENT ONE CHAPTER 18 READ BY ATCHAN SUCHITO AND NICK SCOTT Looking for shelter while walking through the forested uplands of southern Bihar, ATCHAN AND NICK HAVE BEEN DIRECTED TO A CHRISTIAN HOSPITAL AND A MYSTERIOUS DR. VINCE. Chapter eighteen A Matter of Survival At Chensuchito
1: Looking back now on how spaced out I was, I reckon the sun must have gone to my head. It felt like I was a blurred wholeness, sensitive, raw even, but vibrant. Something through which places and events and people were moving. They were moving through me, rather than me moving through them. The thumping rhythm of walking, the trucks clattering past in the light rain. Everything left its mark, sometimes a churning tide. I wondered from time to time, how was I supposed to act in all this? Or not act at all? We came to Tumbagara a small village on the main road to Runchy, south of South Burrowa. Nick looked like a tramp, with his beaten-up old holdall and ragged clothes. I felt scruffy, my robes were grimy, my feet black and cracked. Cold-water rinses only diluted the dirt caked on by the sweat of the journey, and shaving the face felt irrelevant. Mind was just as shaggy, In ten weeks' walking I dropped into unrefined wayfaring mode where conversation comes out disconnected and just when it will, and sometimes you can't even get the energy to come up with a reply. We'd abandoned being reasonable with each other. It made things simpler. But standing at the neatly fashioned gate of Dr. Vince's hospital, I thought it was time to recollect some of the social niceties. I remembered about knocking on doors and saying, Sorry, and... Please and thank you a lot. I'd got out of the habit. Social graces were all to do with people feeling that they owned the space they lived in. The phrase Nav Jivan ran above the gate in wrought iron. That must mean new life. A good sign, if a mite evangelical. A Christian place would be forgiving at least. There being no gatekeeper, and no bell to ring, we entered, following a path that proceeded across the grounds. There had been some attempt at gardening. A smiling Indian woman in her uniform responded affirmatively to our inquiries. Some instinct in me felt uneasy at that. This was the first time that a woman had smiled at me in India. Moreover, it was a Christian smile, one of those smiles that wants you to know that you are being smiled at. I didn't know if I wanted to be accepted that much. It was good to retain a bit of rough unpalatableness, just for the sake of personal definition. We were guided to a simple, single-storey building. Inside, lots of smiles greeted us, along with a pleasant female flutter that caused me to feel even grubbier and slightly defensive. A Western woman, pale, large and wearing Indian clothes, came to meet us. Her friendly awkwardness and sense of distance were reassuringly English. She moved her hands in gestures that suggested, but did not impose, an invitation, and introduced herself as Wendy. Her husband, Dr. Colin Binks, also known as Dr. Vince, as V and B are interchangeable in India, was busy right now, so she would show us round if we liked. Wendy had a comfortable English bathos, and the expatriate's grace of being agreeably bemused by the non-English nature of life. She was a perfect guide. I would have found the shy but shining responsiveness of the Indian nurses almost too much. Being attuned to a more dour kind of dialogue between the body, the mind, and the gritty earth, this female enthusiasm was rushing through me like strong coffee. But Wendy was wonderfully matter-of-fact, and let the place speak for itself. The hospital had a hundred beds, but even more occupants, and was very cheerful. Wendy explained the system. In the male wards, the wife was allowed to sleep under the bed, but not vice versa. However, in every ward that we saw, the patient's relatives had moved in, bringing food and a few belongings with them. Some of the patients had a relative squatting on the bed by their feet. Family Dharma is about continual belonging, even in sickness, even in death. Wendy brightly led us through the hospital and across the grounds past the little church, which she alluded to in half a sentence, to the Binkses' bungalow with its little garden. She opened the door, and we stepped into Middle England the three-piece suite, the marquetry pictures on the wall, the carpet on the floor, the bookcase, Bible and some Christian works, amongst others, a sprinkling of Christmas cards, the apologies for the place being such a mess, a couple of balls of wool on the floor and a flute on a chair. Would we like some tea? Or hot chocolate? Over my chocolate I thought it better to say as little as possible until I get used to the English idiom again, and watched out for the signs of embarrassment. Anyway, Nick was happy to chat away, and Wendy settled down on the sofa, picked up the rug that she was knotting, and took in the story of our journey with genuine interest. I was surprised at how different Nick's narrative sounded from my memories, but somehow the implications of that didn't dawn on me at the time. I was drifting in the chocolate and feeling out the room, Colin showed up later, apologising for being held up in surgery. There'd been a casualty, and he'd been stitching up some severed tendons in a man's hand. He was in his thirties, fresh-faced and enthusiastic. He was as likeable as Wendy, and equally interested. They'd been here for ten years, and quietly confessed to the thought that God had sent them here. I had to admire their ability to adapt to life in Tumbagara, "'Yes, it does get hot,' Wendy commented casually. "'Whatever 120 degrees is supposed to be in centigrade. "'And in the winter, when every Bihari villager "'was huddling over a fire of burning straw, "'they did not build a fire. "'It only gets cold for a week or so. "'They came from Chelton of all places, "'so the furnishings and the neat garden "'made a lot of sense as a means of psychological survival.' It felt as though they were glad to have our company. We would be very welcome to stay the night or longer. And by good fortune, there was an unofficial way into the Bettler National Park that we could get to from the hospital. It would save us a long walk around to the main entrance with whatever hassles would have awaited us there. Eventually I got Colin round to talking tentatively about religion. The hospital had been set up by the Mennonites, a North American Protestant sect I'd only vaguely heard of. There didn't seem to be a particular doctrine, or maybe Colin didn't want to go into details. The main thing seemed to be to live a truly Christian life. There was a church, but the Binx's practice seemed to be more individual and internalised, not even that easy to express, particularly if one is English. Having adjusted to the convention, the conversation was becoming animated, so we better apologise for taking up so much of their time and head for bed. They took us over to the small guest house and offered us a couple of rooms with beds that had sheets and blankets on them, an adjacent shower with hot water, then added apologies for the inadequacy of the lodgings. Breakfast? Next morning... January 19th, according to my diary, an Indian girl brought some platters in, laden with parotas, toast, a pan of scrambled eggs, butter, marmalade, and pots of tea. The plates and cutlery were of secondary interest. It was strange to use all this hardware again, especially there seemed to be much more than we needed. We took some cups and cutlery, and briefly surveyed the offering careful to keep to the mendicant's sacred code of even shares. Fifty-fifty. That meant three slices of toast for Nick and three for me. And the precision of the allocation of those precious eggs would have done credit to Solomon, or to a desert patriarch dividing his domain amongst his sons. Nothing was left to chance, not a crumb. Then we set to, steadily, and in earnest silence, letting the good food and the warm tea flow into us, and feeling the body enthuse with energy. Enthusiasm means to be filled with a god. No wonder eating is so often a part of religious observances. What a pantheon we worship! Or is it one god with many names? the communion was all over soon or at least for us just as we were clearing up and getting to our feet an indian woman in a white coat came in briskly glanced momentarily at us and a little longer at the table she was no shy village maid like the nurses this was an educated woman she didn't say hello and didn't look at us again. Hurriedly, she pulled a spare cup towards herself and attempted to fill it from one of the teapots. We'd emptied them. She went to the kitchen area and took a jar out of the cupboard and plugged in an electric kettle. Nick and I looked at each other as we made for the door, the same calculations going through our minds, the surplus plates and cutlery, the extra teacup. Six slices of toast is as easily divided by three as it is by two. The doctor sat down in silence with a cup of coffee and buried her attention in some papers. Merciless heavens, while possessed by the gods of the table, we'd eaten her breakfast. You forget that civilised people don't have to eat everything that is set before them. Our front as socialised humans was blown. But Colin and Wendy laughed it off. We nearly ate the plates as well, I said, as Nick explained that we hadn't eaten anything as sustaining as that in how long? Last few days had just been rice with a little dal, or variations on rotis and biscuits. They said... We must come back when we left the park. Meanwhile, Nick lost the book on Indian bird life that he purchased in Calcutta. An unintended sacrifice. It may have served for atonement.
2: Dick Scott We left the hospital through the back entrance the way the people from the local villages came and went. The young man Wendy had asked to guide us knew many of them and we stopped often as we made our way across the fields and through two small villages. The track left cultivation and people climbing slightly it wound its way through scrubland and then the land suddenly dropped before us and we were looking down into the valley of the Oranga River. The slopes below were dotted with thorny shrubs, patches of bare stony ground showing between them, but the much flatter land on the other side of the river was covered in mature forest. The difference between the two sides was startling, as if someone had recently mown our side with a giant lawnmower. The river was the boundary for the Betler National Park and the Palamu Wildlife Reserve. It's one of nine reserves that make up Project Tiger, a high-profile and well-funded wildlife project. The small white government hut on the far side of the river, amidst the trees, would be the base for a forest guard and the reason for the abrupt change in the fortune of the forest. Project Tiger is one of the best-known conservation projects in the world. It was set up by Indra Gandhi in the early 1970s as part of her response to the worldwide concern about the fate of the tiger. India had the largest remaining population of tigers but the estimate of 30,000 tigers made just before the war had declined by then to 1,800. With financial help from the Worldwide Fund for Nature the project turned the decline in tiger numbers into an increase so that by the 1980s Tigers were flourishing again in India. The track led down the slope, cutting back on itself several times, and as we started down, we heard the long, eerie wail of a jackal. At the river, we removed our sandals and waded across, our calves being tugged at by the shallow, fast-flowing river, causing us to wobble occasionally on the stony bed. On the other side, our guide led us past the hut, and to a jeep track inside the forest where he took his leave. We were amidst open forest with well-spaced tall trees and a lot of light reaching the forest floor. Good tiger territory, with plenty of grazing for the deer they prey on. It was also very beautiful, and we slowed to take it all in, each of us walking along on our own. We came to a fault which had long ago been engulfed by the forest. There were high stone walls on top of a low crag, covered in creepers, and a ruined entranceway through which we could see that the tall trees also grew inside. I heard the stuttering of an Indian motorbike coming down a side track from the fort. It appeared, and then it pulled up next to Ajahn Suchito, ahead of me, and as it did, the woman riding pillion put her hands in Anjali and bowed to him. As I arrived, the riders were struggling with their crash helmets. From under them emerged a smiling Indian couple. The Upadais, Mr. and Mrs., spoke English with only the slightest of Indian accents and explained they were both Buddhists, followers of the Tibetan tradition. They'd just been to Bugaya following the Dalai Lama's colour Chakra impoundment at Sarnath and were now on their way home to Benares via some sightseeing. They'd even been told at Rajgir about a Western Buddhist monk who'd been robbed by bandits. Did doesn't know him? We told them about our journey, and they told us of the many trips they'd made around India on his Enfield motorcycle. They'd even ridden it to Ladakh, high in the Himalayas. They couldn't stop long, He had to be back at work at Clark's hotel in Benares the next morning, so he gave us his card and insisted we contacted him as soon as we got there. Then they got back on the bike, adjusted their helmets, and waved as they roared off down the track to Betla. Our journey to Betla took another two hours, including a stop for a meal of biscuits and sweets, all I had been able to buy in Tumbagra. There was much more to the Forest Office at Bettler when we got there than I'd imagined. As well as a typical Forest Department compound with a house for the Forest Officer and the Rest House, there was also a Government Tourist Lodge and down the road two private hotels. We couldn't stay, despite my protestations, in the Rest House that I'd booked, but had to use the more expensive and empty Tourist Lodge. There, a sleepy government issue clerk signed us in and explained that visitors had stopped coming because of the fuel crisis caused by the Gulf War. He took us to our room, which had a balcony overlooking the park and a shower with a water heater. This could only be used during the district's allocated electricity times, 10.30pm to 3am, not times we were likely to want a hot shower. Still, it was a nice room and it made my fuss about the rest house seem silly. Outside was a large display board titled Last Tiger Scene with the writing in chalk under it confirming something I'd suspected. It read Sunday 23rd of December by Mr Chatterjee and Party of Calcutta. That was nearly a month ago and it meant that this was not a good time of year to see tiger. I knew that Palamo had hides overlooking waterholes, but game wouldn't collect around them until the forest started to dry out in March. That meant the only way for us to have a reasonable chance of seeing tiger in January would be to go into the forest on foot. In the early evening, I went to see the forest officer again, who was a nice man, but said he couldn't let us walk in the forest without permission of his field director. He suggested we could use their jeep, but then admitted we were unlikely to see Tiger that way. This time I didn't try to argue. Instead I sat on his porch drinking tea, telling him about our journey and about my work in nature conservation. He told me how they were much better funded here than at the other forest districts. He had his own jeep, there was a trained elephant, and they had modern rifles and radios. As I left, I tried asking him again about a trip on foot, and this time he said he would see what he could do. Later, a forest guard came to our room to say he was taking us into the forest at six in the morning. I suspect, mentioning in passing, that I was a project director in England might have helped. Here the project director was very important, in charge of all nine Project Tiger reserves and managing a staff of hundreds. In England, while I was also in charge of quite a few nature reserves, they were only 50 acres each, not 1,056 square kilometres. Only my employers ever referred to me as a project director. I called myself the reserve warden. In reality, though, I was both in charge of a project that created nature reserves, which we then managed. It was something I found myself in by accident. I'd just finished a four-month walk across England with one of the monks, starting at the monastery in Sussex and ending at a small monastery in Northumberland, 800 miles later. When we got there, I stayed on at the monastery, living in a small cottage nearby and writing my long overdue thesis the monks in the monastery were convinced that I would end up joining them. But that was never in my mind. I had received six years of society's money to get first a degree and then a doctorate, and I felt I should be putting something back. So I accepted a post in charge of a new nature reserve, which sounded great at first, until I found out more about it. The small charity had been given a site next to the sea left after open-cast coal mining. It was supposed to have been restored to make an ideal place for wading birds, but in reality it was a mess. There were major mistakes in the design, the lake had several leaks, there was duck shooting on the nearby seashore, and to make things worse, a big caravan park was planned for the adjacent fields. They wanted someone to sort it all out with hardly any budget, and for only a nominal wage. But I reckoned if I worked there for the five years they had money for, I would have repaid my debt. In that time, the problems were resolved, and more sites were offered to us. And so I then stayed on. All this came back to me while I was at Betla. It was meeting the Indians like the forest officer who had, like me, ended up totally committed to their wildlife project. I could see the signs, how he only became really animated when talking about the wildlife and the tigers. When he later took us both to the nearby village temple to see a statue of Sarasvati that the peasants had just made, a crude clay figure painted white, propped against the wall with flower petal offerings at her feet, it was obvious that he knew little more of her than that it was her festival the next day. It was Ajahn Sucito who explained that she was the goddess of fertility and learning and that she was painted all white because she was the goddess in her virgin aspect. All the forest officer knew was that there would be fireworks and celebrations at night and that tomorrow she would be taken to the river and thrown in. He wasn't interested in that kind of thing. Just like me.
0: At Chchi:
1: Although the Buddha had obviously loved forests and had a keen sensitivity to nature, it said very little specifically about conservation. Yet, the more I considered it, the more it became obvious that environmental destruction was an aspect of a broader malaise that the Buddha devoted all his time towards curing. The great illness from which all imbalance, all insensitivity and abuse stems is self centeredness Enthralled by the tremendous inflation of seeing ourselves as the centre and pinnacle of creation, we claim the right to do what we like with it, wiping out any creature that gets in our way. Even the ones we devote ourselves to, our pets, are projections of our fantastic psychological needs. Strange that few ever acknowledge that such needs never are and never can be fulfilled in this way. The Buddha kept pointing to that. And the converse, that harmlessness and sharing were not just for the welfare of other creatures, They were prime means of pulling ourselves out of the black hole of greed, hatred and delusion. Because if beings knew, as I know, the result of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would they allow the stain of meanness to obsess them and take root in their minds. In the world of ecology, the statistics are depressing. The large picture for the world is a grim one and numbs the will to do anything about it. So, the only way I can ever feel that making an effort is worthwhile is to think small, to deal with what was most immediate. In recent days, my own small practice has been to offer some of my food every day to other creatures. Before eating, I'd break off a morsel of a roti and a fragment of biscuit and set it on the ground a few metres away from me. Something lovely or hideous would eat it sooner or later, and it wasn't up to me to choose. And no matter how small the meal, I could always spare a bit. A few crumbs weren't going to make much difference to my own survival. It was a good way to use food. It helped me to see myself as part of the larger picture, and somewhere on the road to Betla some insect, slug, lizard or rodent must have experienced a few moments of well-being on account of my passing. Later in the afternoon, from the privileged position of the tourist lodge, I could settle into that sense of immediacy. Swerves of spotted deer came drifting down through the glowing grassland, gentle as falling leaves. Langurs, long-armed monkeys with rich white fur, swung along through the trees by their tails. Their grace was exquisite. I unpacked my bag and laid the mat and blanket out on the veranda. I sat there, opening up to the scene, Then, as the light turned to dusk, brought the mind forward in meditation. The darkness filled me with each breath. But the hours were soon nibbling my energy like hungry rabbits. I hung around in that space a little dully, then began to drift. Sounds of human celebration were thumping in the night. Somewhere was the pulse of backache, and the tingle of the evening chill. It was midnight, enough. I went fully clothed into the sleeping bag where I was sitting, out on the veranda. Early in the morning we were to go off in search of Tiger, I was quite keen on the idea was part of the forest monk's training to go to wild places and live out in the open or in a cave with tigers nearby. The fear helped to kindle the sense of spiritual urgency. Meditation masters will talk about the effect of hearing the tiger's ferocious roar or encountering the creature watching them as they did their walking meditation. I'd even had some experience with tigers myself in Thailand. They certainly helped to keep you awake but it was also the mystique of the creature. Solitary and nocturnal, brindled with black and gold, the tiger has always had a supernatural charisma associated with it. The weavers of the Puranas, the tales of the Hindu gods, rightly chose the tiger as the mount of Shiva's powerful consort. When she rides the tiger, the goddess is Durga, literally difficult to approach. In this aspect, she is no longer Kali the black hag, but dreadfully beautiful, a red goddess who fills warriors with power and victory. We went out early with uniformed guard and a tracker. The tracker had no uniform, carried a machete and moved along quietly, bent over and forwards like a wrestler, feeling at the subtle movements and moods of his opponent. We came behind him, naturally in silence. The forest was a rippling green sea, yielding and hypnotic. We moved slowly through its grasses like sea creatures nudging through billowing kelp. Occasionally a space would open. We would pause, look around, and listen intently to the insect buzzes and the waves of silence. It felt good to soak it up, like listening to an old tale and letting the plot unravel as it would. Then we would absorb into walking. At least I did, in order to keep going. The tracker seemed to be able to stay aware on many levels at the same time. Suddenly he bobbed down. And froze with spread hands, thrust back to check us, and a whisper on his outbreath, "Hutti, elephant." It took a moment to see. I could even miss an elephant in that dreamy green sea. About thirty meters ahead was a female, tearing at some foliage with its back to us, and a calf in tow. The guard murmured that she was dangerous, but the tracker's body bent almost double said it all. As she ambled along, he allowed us to creep forward. And after a few minutes, the elephant broke into a purposeful stride and disappeared. My mind gradually sagged into an unfocused daydream. And suddenly there was a wild bison, surprised as we rounded a bend in the trail, Its reaction was quicker than ours. Fortunately, its alarm caused it to run away from us. It was another female, and we were lucky it didn't have a calf. And lucky, said the guard, that it wasn't a bull in the mating season. We kept going for about an hour, gradually coming full circle. I was drooping again. It was Nick who saw the tiger. I couldn't see her at first, but she must have been watching us for a while from the top of a rock, about twenty-five metres to the right of the trail as it wound through a clearing. It was just her head, ears pricked, unblinking eyes fixed in an unfathomable regard. With such poise, it had to be female. We all froze, and the guard was trembling with excitement. He hadn't seen a tiger for a year. The tiger was not alarmed, but not prepared to show us much interest either. She let us relax and realise that our attempts at stealth were completely futile. What excitable little monkeys we were in the power of her gaze. She knew that she was utterly unreachable. Her gaze locked into mine for a few long seconds, she offered that dark window into another reality and nothing more. While we were mesmerised, suddenly she was gone. I felt very pleased for Nick. Also for the Nature Reserve, there had not been a sighting so far this year, and the guard told us that this sighting, together with Nick's name, would be chalked up on the board in the lodge. It jarred me. It seemed disrespectful to the tiger even sensationalist to have the revelation hung up like a trophy. It's that attitude that familiarizes things that are other and turns them into objects for human fascination and judgment. Do we need tigers? Are they worth preserving? What a way for a monkey to think about a tiger. But that's the way it all goes and the sacred becomes ornamental saleable, and disposable.
2: Nick
0: Scott
2: Seeing the tiger was wonderful, only the second I'd ever seen in the wild. From then on, I was drawn to the forest, dark and brooding, beyond the parkland round the lodge. I would walk down the track, with the deer and monkeys moving quietly away, and on into the jungle. I went several times, each time getting the courage to go a bit further than the last time. It was best at dawn or dusk, when the animals and birds were most active, but this was also the time it was easy to imagine things lurking in the shadows. I did see a sleek brown jungle cat stalking across the path ahead, stopping once to listen, but never anything big enough to threaten me. I also saw some wonderful birds. I remember particularly a big crested hawk eagle gliding through the trees and my favourites, the jungle owlets, small feathered balls with two watching eyes nestling in the fork of a tree. On the Monday I went into Dortengange to the office of the field director. The officer I saw was a big bluff man about my age. He had on a safari shirt with large button pockets on each breast and a blue silk handkerchief round his neck. He looked like a big game hunter and he spoke like one too. But he was a very committed man and I learnt a lot from him about the frustrations of working for nature conservation in India. He said for the younger generation like him who cared about wildlife Some of the ways of the old-fashioned civil service were really frustrating, like the rule requiring them to change their post every three years. He also hinted at the problems of working under the older generation of officers. Many of them cared more about their position than their work, and so they were unwilling to confront any problems. He told me about the village cattle grazing in the forest, and how this was fueled by government loans, given out by the Agricultural Department to buy cattle, grants given even when the only place remaining to graze extra cattle was the forest. The grazing reduced the food available for the wild deer, the prey of the tiger. There were other problems too. The park was divided into two zones, an inner core area of 200 square kilometres from which all the people were removed, and a much larger outer area where the intention had been to let the forest tribal people live in harmony with nature. This was all very well, but these tribals are breeding like rabbits. Their clearings were always getting bigger, and their animals were grazing into the forest. As a result, the local people now resented the forest service, and that meant that the locals were helping the poachers. Tigers are being killed, perhaps not so much in this reserve as some, but it is surely happening. The poachers set snares on the tigers' favourite trails and then clubbed them to death. More recently they had started using bait, a dead goat from the village filled with poison, so that the skins wouldn't be damaged. It is a painful business working in nature conservation. You get emotionally involved and there can be so much suffering. It had happened with my work. I really came to care about the birds on that first reserve, and fought battles to get the local shooting stopped, to try to move the caravan side, to raise money to improve the habitat, and then to provide facilities for visitors. Even when I had succeeded, I would still get upset at any perceived threats. It would be even worse if you were looking after something as wonderful as tigers. I returned from Dalton Gange with two chittis allowing us to stay in forest rest-houses. The officer had recommended one at Maramar at the southern end of the national park. It is not tiger country, but it is first-rate, the best in Bihar. This particular rest-house was for forest staff, not tourists, but for us he would make an exception. He also suggested that we stay at Ketchki. It is most beautiful rest house, where the Oranga and North Khol meet. When you are walking from Betla to Banaris, you can stop there. For the Maramar rest house, however, we would have to take a bus, as it was 40 kilometres away. The afternoon bus was at 4.30, only an hour after the one I came back on, so we had to pack quickly to be outside the forest compound, in time to catch it. That was another fabulous bus ride. We clambered onto the roof again and rode through the forest with the wind in our faces and the sun on our backs. It was rolling country, rising gradually, and as it rose the forest got drier. The trees thinned and the under-shrubs disappeared to reveal a forest floor covered with dry leaves. This was the dry, tropical forest, dominated by sow, that was supposed to be typical of the Bihar hills. The hills are made of very ancient rocks, so old and hard that they produce very poor, shallow and parched soils. We went through miles of forest like that, occasionally coming to small checkposts, with red and white painted poles lowered over the road as a barrier. They were manned by forest guards, who opened the barriers and waved the bus through. The bus came to a large clearing with fields, and then to the small community of Chipadaha, which was not much more than a market and a railway station. From there, the bus went through more dry forests, now with occasional smaller clearings, like the ones we had seen on our way to Betla, of fields, a small village of orange and white mud huts, and standing trees. The people of the area were presumably the tribals the officer had spoken of. The road began to descend, and then we were looking through the trees flicking by out over the valley of the North Khol River. The land on the far side of the river was flat, the alluvial soils there more fertile. There were green fields, and the small town of Garu on the far side of a bridge. The bus swept down and over the North Coal, which was a wide shallow sheet of meandering water. I just had time to recognise dusky crag martins hawking over the river before we were amongst the houses and the bus was slowing to a crawl. The main street we were now edging along was crowded with young men in high spirits shouting, laughing and dancing. Some were dressed as women, and all of them were throwing blue pigment at each other and anyone else they saw. The sides of the bus were soon plastered with the stuff, but they didn't notice us on the top. Then, coming towards us, was the white plaster image of Saraswati, dressed in gaudy silks and being borne above a sea of heads. The heads parted and flowed around the bus with Sarasvati bobbing past at our level. She was on her way to the river. The bus began to move again. We went through another barrier, and we were free of Garu, and gradually climbing through tall forest of sal, teak, and the occasional grove of bamboo. The air began to cool, and then turned cold, and then, just as dusk was beginning, we arrived at Marimar. There was another check post, a small neat hamlet of forest department houses, and beyond them the rest house. It was on a slight knoll in a garden of flowering shrubs and fruit trees, and beyond it, and all around us, was the forest. It dropped away on one side and rose on the other, enveloping a big hill. We were amongst the highest hills of the park and some of the highest in Bihar. The rest house itself was just short of 1,000 metres, which is why we suddenly felt so cold. That stop at Maramar was one of the most enjoyable of the pilgrimage. There was a wood fire to sit beside in the evening. We lit it in the early morning too, but I preferred to sit outside then, huddled in a blanket, watching the light slowly coming to the surrounding forest. The forest was wonderful, as good, the assistant director had told me, as we would see anywhere in India. All the forest had been cut at least once by the British, he explained, but for this forest, that was more than 150 years ago. The reason it was still in such good state was not because the small team of guards based there was any larger than anywhere else. It was because this was the most out-of-the-way part of Bihar. It only had one road leading into it, and that was lined with checkpoints. Ajahn Suchito really appreciated the space and spent most of his time just sitting in the garden. But I couldn't resist climbing the hill. It took me most of the next afternoon to get to the top, from which there was a magnificent view over the forest, with the North Coal River winding through it. But it was the time I spent sitting in the forest, near the rest house, that meant the most to me. I would wander no distance at all, just a few hundred metres down the tarmac road, and then turn off and just sit there, under a tree, contemplating it all. There were so many different kinds of trees and each had its own beauty. I would be delighted with the way the light played with the dense hanging leaves of one, or the elegant tall white trunks of another. The forest being so dense, the wildlife it supported was mostly arboreal. Monkeys occasionally swung and jumped through the trees, crashing from one to another. Magnificent birds would appear from a tree, flap lazily, and disappear into another, while squirrels and other animals would sometimes scamper amongst the branches. Most of the time, though, it was silent, and I would sit there, enthralled by the totality of it, and occasionally wonder where it all went wrong. In the same mind doing the pondering was the answer, that restless human need to do, to become, and to improve. It was that which took me to the top of the hill, when I could have spent more time just sitting in the forest. And it was that which has taken us human beings to where we are now, at the brink of destroying the entire natural habitat. Sometimes on meditation retreats, when all the different individual desires have fallen away, I am left, just with the raw feeling of that becoming. The Buddha said it was one of the last things to go before enlightenment, the fundamental drive that causes all the rest. That human need to get things done affects nature conservation. In my work, I had noticed how other people were attracted because we were getting things done. As the reserve I was working on developed and the birds began to use it, More people wanted to help. The coal industry, who at first had ignored us, gave us support and more sites. Local businesses gave us money. The district council gave us grants for facilities for visitors. And many individuals came to do voluntary work. That one nature reserve evolved into a project to create over 300 acres of wetlands for birds next to the coast we were getting something very worthwhile done. But the Wildlife Trust was originally set up to preserve wildlife habitat, and the habitat we were making could never be as diverse and wonderful as the real thing. The Trust owned a lot of it, and it was sorely in need of management. But people were not interested in maintenance. It was not becoming anything. That is what had happened to Project Tiger too. To begin with, everyone was keen to help save the tiger. But then, when the tiger had been saved, they lost interest. The politicians forgot it. The big wildlife organisations went on to save something else. And the Indian Forest Department was left to get on with it on their own. There was a documentary on television two years after I came back from the pilgrimage about what had gone wrong with Project Tiger they showed how for years the reserve staff had been overestimating the number of tigers, and that while their records claimed that the tiger population had remained steady for 20 years, in fact for the past 10, it had been rapidly dropping. Poachers were taking the tigers for their skins and for their bones. The head of Project Tiger denied there was a problem, but the documentary showed the work of an independent Indian organisation that was tracking the movement of wildlife products. They had just captured some middlemen with tiger skins and a thousand kilograms of bones. These were about to be carried by Tibetan refugees over the Tibetan border to China. The bones represented 65 mature tigers, and this was just one shipment. The organisation reckoned 500 to 1000 tigers had gone this way in three years. In China, the bones are ground up and used in potions for rheumatism. The documentary also featured a scientist who studied the tiger. He explained how the project's method for counting tigers, by measuring footprints to identify them, overestimated the numbers. He pointed out that even without poaching there couldn't be the number claimed because there was now so few deer for them to prey on. This was due to the grazing of village cattle on the reserves that I'd heard about at Dalton Gunge. Other tiger experts estimated that there were now no more than 5,000 tigers left in the world and that at the present rate of loss the tiger would be extinct within 10 years. I dare say, with the new public concern, the decline of the tiger in India will be stopped again. If the tiger is saved, then the forest we were in at Maramar will also be saved. A high-profile species such as the tiger acts as an umbrella, requiring us to save large tracts of natural habitat for it to live in. But one cannot help but wonder for how long the effort can be kept up. That is something I often thought of in my conservation job. After we have saved all these animals, plants, bits of habitat or whatever, we then have to look after them. Forever. Looking after things is something humans are not very good at. It will take a much more mature attitude than we have at present. Maintenance needs wisdom.
1: Maroma, the mountain, was like a full stop. We stayed in a forest rest house and followed our own ways. Nick did a lot of wandering around, but for me, as usual, it was just the opposite. I went so much into stillness that it was difficult to get my mind moving on anything. Having to sort out the meal with the chokidar was enough, His Hindi was not very good. Eventually I figured out that he was asking me where the food was that I wanted to have cooked. This being a mountain hamlet, the visiting officers would normally bring their food up from the village miles away in the valley. We had none. So it seemed we would be going without food for a day at least. But the Chokidar kept asking about chaval, rice, roti, and dal I'd run out of ideas and energy, so I just repeated the words back to him, throwing in teak and achar for good measure, until eventually he went away. An hour or so later, a cooked meal of rice and dal with roti turned up. As usual, the natural response for him had been to give us some of his own food. All he wanted to find out was whether we would eat his simple fare. For me, the expectation had been that we'd go without. It's so natural to assume that nothing outside of yourself will look after you. The fully socialised human, having destroyed or domesticated the otherness of life, lives believing himself to be surrounded by an unfeeling absence. And despite the daily miracle of wayfaring, I was still functioning from that view. I hadn't learned much about trust. The realization of my unquestioning mistrust of life was a mind stopper. I had to sit with it and more. The mind is a jungle awash with creatures, wild, domestic and mythical. At a certain depth, there is a meeting Not with anything known, but a meeting both familiar and alien when you meet estranged aspects of yourself. Their moods and images prowl or stare, demanding some response. The seeker is in a kind of tension, an ominous uncertainty. Like a wrestler with no more throws, he can't use any more prowess and doesn't know what else to do. Something follows him like an orphan, questioning. So what's the response? Do nothing, and your energy and focus desert you. Press onwards, and you feel an unresolved tension. All I could do was to open to estrangement. I sat outside in the bright air with the mountains gathered around Mountains that were themselves wrapped in forests. Just letting things be and listening. Sometimes listening to the mind is easier than watching. There's not the same sense of being someone separate from it trying to make it into something or control it all. It gets less self-conscious. There is an unfolding in empathy. And somehow... "'I remembered a time I'd spent with Agent Chaw "'when he came to England in 1979. "'I hadn't met him before. and was rather nervous of meeting the great man, "'who had the reputation of being not only strict, "'but also extremely perceptive and vigorous. "'I didn't relish being taken apart. "'And though I had to be present "'when he visited Hampstead and Hokenholt, "'I kept a low profile. "'However, on one occasion I had to travel with him,' and two other bhikkhus from London to Oakenholt. I, along with one of the other bhikkhus, carried his bag and bowl into his room, and just as we were leaving, the master sat down and started talking to me. The other bhikkhu, who spoke Thai, departed, and there I was with the tiger. Ajahn Chah just kept chatting away in Thai, with a big smile on his face. My tie was almost as rudimentary as his English. But it was as if we were lifelong companions. It was more the manner of the conversation than the topics that counted. He had a way of questioning an attitude I had in an affirmative way, such as, "'Having to eat is really a nuisance, eh, Suchito? with a big smile. That made it really easy to engage just by saying, "'Yes.' It conveyed that he and I were on the same wavelength and he was affirming me. After half an hour of this, I felt tremendously uplifted and at ease. He had opened a window into a world of joyful and unfaltering response to suffering. The way out of the jungle of the mind was to stop creating it through fear and self-consciousness. It was exactly the kind of message that I needed. We were three nights up the mountain over the period of the Puja to Saraswati. The days shone, the night-stars blazed, and the fire burned bright in the evenings. And then we walked north and down from the mountain to Garu on the banks of the north Kur. The river was wide and sparkling. Sarasvati, the consort of Brahma, the creator, had entered the water. The whole point of the Puja was to bring the goddess of wisdom triumphantly to the river, the life-giving river, a braiding of currents, a whole system of yielding earth and water dancing in light, pools and vortices, meandering and streamlets and urgent currents, then received her blessing. I gazed at the river, at that mingling of forces that remained independent, different, and yet all intrinsically an aspect of the whole. Totality can't be grasped. Isn't that why we're always breaking it up into mine and other, life and death, divine and human? Truth is experienced as wholeness, but we keep interpreting it dualistically. Wholeness, true holiness can only come through reverence, reverence for body, mind, world, all of the apparent opposites. It was a good theme to bring north for the pilgrimage. We hitched a ride to Betla in a jeep and proceeded back to Jivan. As we made our way along the road, a line of villagers scuttled out of the forest and across the fields, carrying bundles on their heads, something poached, something contraband. The law of survival. And as we continued, another reminder of that law loomed up in the shape of the ancient fort that we had passed on our way in. As pilgrims, we were obliged to climb the massive ramparts. It wasn't easy. My energies were out of whack again, and something was going wrong with my right leg. It felt like some ligaments around the hip joint were strained. So it was slow, climbing up the old steps of the mountain of forgotten kings, tree roots growing out of them. After that, it was child's play to wander along the tops of the walls. The ramparts carried a causeway some three meters wide around their rim. Arrow slits still peered anxiously over the forest towards an ominous horizon. Even though there was no longer anything to defend, Instead, through overhanging foliage, langurs did acrobatics for us. Lovely wings beating the trees a few unbridgeable metres away from where we sat in the cupped roof of a tower. And beyond them stretched the wild and fragile forest. The situation called for something. We got out some incense. Let's bless the forest. So we chanted the Metta Sutta at the top of the old fortress letting the Buddha's words come from the heart letting the blessing pour out of this ancient brimming chalice and I didn't feel embarrassed. We returned to the binks. They were enthusiastic and we talked late into the night. In the morning we set off going back to the oranga and continuing north. My last memory of them is of us pondering with Colin over his rabbits. He kept them, you see, in order to have a bit of meat. He looked after them well and killed them himself. He felt the responsibility was his. The problem was, they were such lovable creatures. One did get rather attached to them. Who has the right over whom? Who has the right to be here? Rabbits? Tigers? Villagers? Buddhist monks? The big picture is too big. I try to get it into focus, but eventually just let the space around the question be peaceful. I think the goddess must have gone to my head.
0: seen and the unseen, those living near and far her child her only child so Whoa. with a bow.